Good morning. So we finished chapter 15 last week with Pastor Mike. We're going to start chapter 16 this morning. And um, I just had, I only have one question up there, but I actually have two questions for all of us. Um, obviously, this is the first one. What, what are we chasing after today? And my second question is, um, where do you find true beauty at today in the world? Where do you find true beauty at? And so I know we have a lot to go through, but um, if you could think of those two things while we go through this passage, what are you chasing after and where do you find true beauty at today? Um, before I, uh, God got hold of me, I was chasing after all sorts of things. I was going down roads I didn't even belong down. Some were okay, some were really bad. And um, I had no idea what I was doing until he got hold of me and I realized I was chasing after all the, all the wrong things. It came, I came to my senses, or he brought me to my senses, right? Um, so I ask you, what are you actually chasing after today? And Because there's so many different things that we all seem to be after um, that makes us happy. We get this happiness. And we look at comfort, we look at success, we look at a bigger house, maybe even someone else's approval. We chase jobs, we chase dreams, we chase habits, maybe even addictions. All of this in one big effort to gain some type of satisfaction or maybe some type of sense of accomplishment. Sometimes we find ourselves chasing after something that we aren't even supposed to have. But it just feels like you're just chasing after wind most times. I want to share with you a story of a, a young lady, an 18-year-old girl, um, and she felt paralyzed with her relationship with God. She knew that he was real, but she said her fancy prayers and devotions just didn't seem to be cutting it. She felt she was doing everything right, but deep inside it felt really wrong. She thought she was giving God exactly what he wanted. So she began to question herself, did I miss all the rules for wrestling with God? Did I miss something? She said, I was doing all the right things. I won admiration from everyone but him. I felt empty and prideful. It was worse than rebellion, she said, being good but with no God. And it started to occur to me that maybe God was after something else, that maybe I was chasing all the wrong things. And then I stumbled across 1 Samuel chapter 13, where it said that David was a man after God's own heart. And the verse intrigued me, she said, because I knew of David. I knew he had sanctioned a murder. I knew that he committed adultery. But I also saw him as a person that was completely sold out for God, but also completely broken. He was in love with God, and he lived with acute awareness of his need for him. And so the closer I got to the life of this man, David, the more my ideas of what God wanted from me had been shattered. David had one life, two eyes, one heart, just like me. But the difference was is that we were all laser-focused on the heart of God. My God, David was in love with him. And yes, David sinned, and yes, he wrestled just like me. But while David wasn't so concerned about appearing godly, he was terribly concerned about knowing who God was. He was a man who saw past his circumstances, past himself, past his life to the heart of God. And I realized, this lady says, I, I then realized I was chasing, after all, the wrong things. 
I wasn't chasing after God's heart. So as we start chapter 16 this morning, we're going to meet David at the very end, who's going to be eventually become the new king of Israel. And as we learn about him for the next several weeks, we're going to see an individual whose life went from pretty much unknown to limelight. He was a nobody, but to God, he was a somebody because he was a man after God's heart, and God is going to elevate him to the greatest position in the country. And so as we start in the passage in verse 1, we see that, that God is going to begin the process of choosing a new king. And we're going to see that, that Samuel is doing the same thing he was doing at the end of um, chapter 15. He was grieving. He was grieving over Saul. And the Lord asked him, how long are you going to grieve, Saul, over this? And there's been a relationship between the two. They've been together for a while. Samuel anointed Saul. They, they have a history. They have a relationship. And there's been an investment in preparing and teaching him. You can look at a, a picture of, say, an employer who has invested his time and money into an employee and months of training and money spent, and then the employee just gets up and, and goes. But with the case of Saul, he was just turned, he turned bad. Um, there were very high hopes for Israel that Saul would lead the people, but he refused to do the will of the Lord, and so God has now rejected him. In chapter 15, 26, that Mike talked about, Samuel tells Saul, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And so we see that God is not going to allow his work to die with the failure of man. In this case, Saul. If it's God's work, it's going to go beyond any man. So Samuel is grieving, but there's a time when certain grief needs to come to an end. And in this situation, the reason why is because it's not going to change anything. God is not going to change his mind. And so I know we grieve as Christians also in different ways. Our lives are going to have moments of grief like Samuel. Could be relationship with no hope, missed opportunity in life, or even a moral or ethical failure. But whether we like it or not, there's some people, some circumstances, and some situations that we have to learn as Christians to get over but we don't grieve alone neither, right? We grieve, God grieves with us. We have a tenderness, he has a tenderness and mercy and he's with us. And so um, when we do grieve, we want to represent the heart of God. Grieving is normal. However, it can sometimes prevent us from doing um, the work that God has called us to do. So Saul is rejected. God's not going to change his mind. God closed the door. He's chosen a new king. In Exodus 14, 15, God told Moses by the Red Sea, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to move forward. It was time for Samuel now to move forward and go about the business that God has called him to do. The main concern here isn't, isn't the future of Saul, right? It's the future of Israel. It's hard at times in life. Like Samuel's hit with this uncertainty. Saul's not going to be king. What are we going to do? And we might have that. Like, what's next? What's next? At times we might embark on these unchartered waters and, and we're a fairly certain future all of a sudden just turned uncertain. And it's scary and it's fearful. Maybe there's grieving like Samuel or fear or something and we wonder, how do I process this? How do I have peace with an uncertain future? But what Samuel needs to do and what we need to do when there is fear is we need to choose that God is bigger than any of it. We need to choose to trust him that his sovereign plan 
is the right plan, and we need to trust that God's faithfulness from the past will make things all right. We're still in verse 1. So we're talking about fill your horn with oil and go. The anointing oil, the purpose of anointing David. It re represents the, the coming of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And the horn is loosely made out of a ram horn. And the next king of Israel is going to be found among Jesse's sons. And Jesse is uh, the grandson of um, Ruth and Boaz. He says, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself, for myself, a king. These words are interesting. It's strong language. I have provided a king for myself. The reason why I say it like this is because if you remember back in chapter 8, Saul was God's provision in light of the people's sinful rejection of him. There's still hope now for Israel, right? Because God has got his plan, he's picking his king, and he's telling Samuel, go get him. So it's very, very strong language. As we move to verse 2, and it says, and Samuel said, how can I go? How can I go? If Saul's, Saul hears this, he, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So he's not excited about his mission. God is sending him on. And instead of being filled with confidence and faith, because God has chosen the next king, Samuel is showing worry and fear, where he says, he's going to kill me. And, I, you know, I would say he's got some good reason. A lot of times have passed between chapter 15 and 16, and Saul is not tracking right. He's become kind of irrational. Samuel might be the, one of the most prominent individuals in Israel, other than Saul. And it could be that, that, that Saul will hear that Samuel is traveling to Bethlehem, and if he suspects anything in regards to anointing a new king, it probably would make him a little stressed out. But then on the other side of this, if God is sending him, or he's sending you, or he's sending me, it stands the reason that we have God's protection. In 2 Thessalonians 3.3, it says, But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you. He says, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So maybe this is a way of, of relaxing Samuel, but he does specify that there's going to be a sacrifice. It's all true. This anointing is going to be more private than, than public. It's going to be a smaller sacrificial ritual rather than a big assembly. But the big picture, he really isn't, should I say, showing. Samuel knows what he's doing, but Samuel isn't going to the people and telling them, I'm coming here because I'm going to anoint a new king, Jesse, from one of your sons. So the big picture really isn't showing, if that makes sense, but then God doesn't always give us the big picture in everything. Sometimes he just gives us these little, uh, little nuggets. And I think one of the reasons why he does that, for us anyway, is that sometimes if he shows us the big thing, we might get a little overwhelmed by what we see. And we might not be able to complete it. But that's kind of the point also. We won't be able to complete it without him, without his strength, right? Without him fulfilling that purpose. So he says, in, 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 invite Jesse in verse, and, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice in verse 3, and I will show you what you shall do. 
and you shall anoint for me whom I declare to you. So God's, gonna, God's in charge. He's going to show him what to do. So Samuel really shouldn't be too worried. Um, when God asks us to do things, sometimes we, um, we probably focus more on the risky part of it than the protection. We get a little nervous. Like instead of going, I know I'm going to go do this because God's called me to do it. I'm doing it. I feel really good about it. But most of the time, I think we, we focus more on the risky, uh, risky part of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So many years ago, um, uh, God called me to something, and um, I was scared to death, not only of public speaking, but um, being out on the streets sharing him. And uh, I procrastinated and procrastinated because I was more scared of the repercussions from people than, than God's protection. But eventually, I ended up going doing it in Oakland and San Francisco, back in Sacramento, and eventually I, I, got, I got over it. But it's true. We, we, we fear the risky part instead of thinking about God's protection when he calls us to do something. Um, and my heart wasn't always right when that did happen. So he will still call you. And remember, Samuel anointed Saul. He was anointed for the people. What I mean by this is several chapters ago, the people demanded a king. They rejected God, and he told Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So God gives the people Saul, Samuel anoints him, and now God is going to pick his king, his own king. I think when we go back to this little quick story I told you about going out in the streets, along with Samuel, the more we do um, with a willing and open heart for God, the more he's going to ask of you is my experience, and the more those doors are going to be open. But it takes a willing, a willing heart. It doesn't have to be a clean heart, a pure heart. You just have to be willing. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded, came to Bethlehem in verse 4. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? So he obeys them. He goes to Bethlehem. The elders see him, and they start to tremble. They're scared, and they want to know, what are you doing here? Did you come in peace? They're scared of him. Why are they so scared? So back in chapter 7, Samuel judged all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year. Could be they thought he was coming to carry out some type of judgment. Or, as Curtis and I talked about this morning, if you look back near the end of chapter 15, they they could be a little concerned about how he handled Agag, Agag at the end of that where it says um, Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. So they could be a little concerned about that. Um, Samuel has a fearsome reputation among them. So in verse 5 he says, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and, and invited them to the sacrifice. So he assures them he's come in peace. He invites them to this sacrifice, gathering, anointing ceremony. We hear nothing else on, on the elders at this point. Consecrate to set one apart, right, spiritually. So it's the, the cleansing or washing of the outer garments. So we're looking at an outward appearance, Outward appearance, cleansing. 
In Exodus 19.10, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. So it was outward. Today, as Curtis led us in confession, it is an inward. It is an inward cleansing. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Inward cleansing for us today. So when they came, in verse 6 and 7, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is, is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected them, rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we have another handsome man from Israel, right? Just like, like that's how Saul was described. Saul was described as handsomer than anybody and taller than anybody. And now we have one of Jesse's sons, the firstborn, Eliab. Another, another beautiful picture of an outward appearance of, a, of an individual. Surely this was God's choice. Samuel looks at his height. He looks at his appearance. From look, Samuel assumes that, that he's going to be it. He is the one who's going to get anointed to be the new king of Israel. This has to be him. But God tells him, no, you're assuming that because he is tall and good looking that he is the one. It's the same error the people of Israel made with Saul. It's like a beauty contest mentality. And it's Saul looked apart, but his heart wasn't there, not for being a king. And so we know what's on the inside is, very, is, is far more important than a physical attribute. So Eliab is rejected. God is not going to select a person based on them looking the part. Remember what Isaiah said when he was prophesizing about the coming Messiah. He had no form, meaning not impressive, no majesty, meaning beauty, that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Physical appearance isn't a qualification to serve God. Jesus said, do not judge according to the appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. One of my big things I'd like to get across this morning is that like, the way of humanity today so much is to look at outward appearance. Even someone as spiritual as Samuel is, was, and discerning. He still leaned toward this tall and handsome individual. Samuel thought Eliab looked the part. And we get drawn into that too. Drawn to a certain personality, fame, beauty, celebrity. And we might tell ourselves, oh, we're only going to follow with the best ideas and a humble spirit. But then we turn around sometimes and we choose the most appealing and the most beautiful. But that's not God's way. He looks at the heart. He looks for the poor in spirit. He looks for the meek and for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So verses 8 through 10, it says, And Jesse called, how do you pronounce it? Abinabinab? <laughs> right? And he made him, made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So they run him through. And he rejects them all. 
And Samuel tells Jesse, none of them. None of them. And you know what? All of them might have been decent potential individuals for king. They might not have even been bad people, but they weren't God's choice. So he's gathered all of them except for one. In verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. We will not sit down until he comes here. So there's a problem. Samuel sees it. God's rejected all the ones that have passed by. So there's got to be one more. It has to be another one. So he asked him. And Jesse doesn't even call him by his name. He doesn't, wasn't even going to invite him to the sacrifice because he's out taking care of the sheep. He's out doing the work, the youngest. It shows low regard for David among his family. He's out taking care of the animals. And Samuel says, well, get him here because we're not sitting down until he comes. And actually, this is really big because this shows how big of a thing this is Nobody's sitting until this last son comes. Very important occasion. And God often picks unlikely people to do his work, though, doesn't he? Look at some of the individuals in the Bible that he used. He used Abraham. He was an old man. He used Rahab, a prostitute. He used Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, persecutor of Christians. And he used Peter, who was just a fisherman. So you shouldn't ever feel unworthy to be called. It's not how we look, it's not how talented you are, or how old you are, or how young you are. What matters is that you're willing and your heart is in the right place. So the last son gets there, David, and in the ESV, it tells us that he's a ruddy, handsome man with beautiful eyes, another beautiful man. Ruddy means a healthy, reddish color, and, and, and we see no disqualification here for how nice looking he is, like Eliab was rejected, right? But David's character is what is pleasing to God. It's his character. David was a shepherd, and, and there were a lot of shepherds. But God described what made David so special to him in chapter 13, and it wasn't his looks. He said, the, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. So what made David special was that he was chasing after God's heart. So he says, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. He will be the new king. David was just a shepherd, but he's the Lord's chosen shepherd. Again, going back to 13, he tells us why. Samuel spoke to Saul in chapter 13, and he tells Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue, Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So we see that God doesn't disqualify David because of his good looks, but he does choose him, but he doesn't choose him for how he looks either, right? David was the youngest. He wasn't even called to the celebration. Doesn't God often call unlikely individuals though, to do his work? David didn't have some type of high status or influence, and we don't have to either to be used by him. I don't know about you, but sometimes we are more impressed with people's achievements than God is. And, I mean, no one but God could have picked Paul after what he did. 
No one could have picked Paul after all the bad that he did. So in verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. He's been given the okay. This is him. Anoint him. And as soon as that happened, it tells us that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. For the rest of his life, unlike Saul, which you're going to find out in the next, uh, should be next week when Pastor Mike is back. This is a, a huge moment in history with David becoming king of Israel. And the last time you're going to hear, the very last time you'll hear David's name mentioned in the Bible is in Revelation chapter 22. When Jesus spoke these words, Jesus said, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And I spoke of this actually back in chapter 10 when, when Saul was anointed by Samuel. And it speaks of God's uh, Spirit suddenly coming upon him or upon someone to empower and equip that individual to serve the interests of God's people. Samuel, having accomplished his mission, gets up and heads back home. So David's chosen to be king because he has what Saul doesn't have. He has a heart for God. And he wasn't chosen king because of his human characteristics, but because his heart was right. For us, to be a person after God's heart, we have to obey and do his will. We have to love him more than anything else in this world. We have to repent when we fail. We have to pursue him passionately daily. Even in David's sin, he pursued God, and he demonstrated his faith and was committed to following him. And his faith was tested, and our faith gets tested. And he failed bad at times, and, and we fail bad at times. But a person after, after God's heart isn't, isn't a perfect isn't a perfect person at all. It's a person who actively seeks to live in obedience with him, but also while being fascinated by God's beauty. This is how people after his heart should be living. So David's life paints a beautiful trail for the real king, Jesus. And Jesus, we know, is a descendant of David who's established his kingdom. In Jesus, we can find the solution to mankind's problems. Because Jesus, son of David, is king, our king, he can do what the earthly kings failed to do, and that's save his people. And we need to be people after God's own heart, and we need to be fascinated by his beauty. I just want to share with you um, another article. I'm not going to read the whole thing, because it can be quite long. It's an article that... um, really changed how I see things years ago. And I remember I asked you about the... Jake got it up there. (laughs) Thank you. Where do you find true beauty? Um, This article is called Will Will Beauty Save the World? I'm only going to touch on some of it. It's actually... um, uh, Albert Moeller, a pastor that I used to listen to, wrote this, but he took it from a Russian novelist in a book called The Idiot. And... um, it basically talks about physical appearance, appearance. And if you would like to read the whole thing, I will 
gladly make you a copy of it. Um, but it talks about humans, how we are instinctively drawn to beauty. This fact is the reason why we go to museums and go to art shows, we go to Grand Canyons, national parks. But how should we think about beauty from a Christian worldview? How does beauty fit within our understanding of the framework of redemption? Consider the problem of beauty, the priority of beauty, and the power of beauty. The problem is that humans are not good at recognizing true beauty when we see it. In a fallen world, even our perception of beauty has been corrupted by sin. This is nowhere more evident when you go, and this is the part that really got me the best in my life, more evident when you go into the stores in the magazine racks, checkout lines, and magazines with airbrush models artificially masking a person's physical flaws, and they're making claims about the character of this individual's beauty. But while these images could be pretty to us, they are certainly not from a biblical perspective. Beautiful. In our fallen state, we often separate the good, the true, and the beautiful from one another. But the Bible reminds us that if something is true, then it is good and beautiful. If something is good, then it is beautiful and true. Finally, if something is beautiful, then it is good and true. Thus, while beautiful beauty magazines may present an image that is pretty, those images are not rightly beautiful because they do not faithfully represent the truth. But the Christian worldview teaches that the face of a child with Down syndrome is far more beautiful than any photoshopped image of a professional model. True beauty is found in what is good and true. The cross of Jesus is certainly not attractive from the world's perspective. The agony of the Savior, the blood of his sacrifice, the horror of the crucifixion are not pretty at all. Yet while the cross is not pretty, it is certainly beautiful. The cross is beautiful because on it, Jesus paid the penalty for us. The cross is beautiful because in it, we see the grace and justice of God. The cross is beautiful because it is also good and true. So the, the Russian novelist is right. Beauty will save the world. And we also must recognize the priority, the beauty of human heart. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is we yearn for things that are generally beautiful. Even the most hardened um, atheist marvels at a sunset or, or stands breathless at the edge of a Grand Canyon. Augustine explained in his confessions that every human heart is directed to beauty. The problem with the sinful human heart is that we can be bought off by something less. Augustine also pointed out to the fact that the human craving for beauty was not mere sentiment. Rather, true beauty reveals an objective origin and the source of beauty, God himself. Our longing for beauty ultimately reveals our desperate need for Jesus. So the Russian novelist asserted that beauty would save the world. And I'm entirely confident that beauty will indeed save the world because nothing could be more beautiful than the work of Jesus. And because Jesus' work is beautiful, it's also true. And because his sacrifice is true, It's also good. And the atoning work of the Lord Jesus is like the epic center of all that is true, good, and beautiful. So the cross of Christ may not be pretty, but it certainly is beautiful. So will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we thank you for um, your word. We thank you for um, everything you give us, your grace and mercy. We pray that you will 
clean our hearts where they need to be. Help them to have a passion for chasing after you in our lives daily. And um, help us to find the true beauty, not chasing after idols in the world and the true beauty of, of you and the cross and everything you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.